Hello, everybody. This is Charlie, and uh, this is the podcast called To Hell and Back. And it's Wednesday, May 9th, uh, and I'm personally speaking from Northampton, Massachusetts. And I'll be speaking today the whole time with um, Melanie Harned from Seattle, uh, who spoke with me last time. If you wanted to, uh, if you didn't hear that, you can go back to the previous podcast and hear where we're coming from because we're talking about trauma and uh, PTSD um, and treatment of PTSD with a treatment that Melanie has put together and has been doing. And uh, then we're going to talk about how this applies, how, how it informs our own lives uh, as many ways as we can think of, um, since we all cope with trauma of one kind or another. Um, so just a couple of announcements. One is that um, Melanie has agreed to continue to do this a third time next week. So uh, this means we'll be able to look at some things in a little more detail and look at some of the implications of what she'll be saying today. And um, it also means that you have another chance to uh, send in a, through email um, any question you might want to have addressed or just comments to make. Um, you can send it to me uh, at uh, c.robert.swenson at gmail.com or go to my website, charlieswenson.com, uh, or for Melanie also at dbtpe.org. Um, the other announcement is that... Um, on May 30th and June 6th, which are two Wednesdays coming up, I'll be joined by um, a woman named Natalia Garcia, who's a uh, psychology doctoral student uh, that's been working with Melanie at uh, University of Washington. The Department of Psychology has been through a DBT practicum. Has Her specialty has been trauma and PTSD, and she's... Um, uh, been learning all these things, but um, then she went through a traumatic experience of her own, to put it mildly, uh, over half a year ago when her healthy two-year-old son um, died in the middle of the night, uh, just tragically and totally shockingly because there was no sign of it coming. And also uh, it happened on the same day that the hurricane hit Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and um, and that's where uh, Natalia's family had come from and where she was actually born. So it, she was just a horrible coincidence. Um, and she's going to talk about what that experience was like, uh, how she's coped with it, uh, and how she's gotten through it and what she's made of it. And um, she's just really done an enormous amount of courageous work and she's graciously agreed to talk with us about it so tune in on may 30th or thereafter to go to the website and find a pod, that podcast um i think that's it um i just want to jump into things about uh, picking up where we left off last week and there are a couple things melanie by the way melanie's on i didn't introduce her yet today but um welcome back thank you i'm glad to be back just a little lapse of social skills here. It's hard when you're by yourself in your guest room to have social skills, but I just don't have some of them anyway. But um, where one of the things, uh, there were two things that I was left with after last time that I just wanted to uh, bring up, and you can address them at the, right away, or you can weave it in later if you want, or you could completely ignore me if you want. But um, what, one of them was, um, you know, what you said was people undergo a traumatic event, a traumatic incident in their life or a series of incidents, and they get um, stuck with that and the strong feelings associated with that. And it sort of spreads and surrounds them in their lives in a certain way. And you talked a little, and this just seemed like so important, that, um, I don't know, I sort of think of it like wound wound healing. I was always amazed going through medical school and afterwards and always have been how how wounds just heal themselves if they get the right conditions it's just an incredible process microscopically 
And uh, I was thinking, how do, don't we have the mechanisms in us to just heal ourselves from psychological or emotional trauma as well? And then I thought, well, we probably do up to a point, just like up to a point we do biologically. And then I thought, the thing that you said, the two things that you said keep us from healing, whatever that process would be, if you ever want to comment on that, um, the, the two things, one was, I think, that... Um, Avoiding the circumstances that uh, in which you were traumatized, and even the internal circumstances, the mental remembering of it, um, and therefore shutting off circulation, you might say, to the to where the trauma was, uh, and therefore not being able to um, go back into that situation, as you put it last time, to go down through the middle of that situation somehow, and be able to. Um, prove to yourself or arrive at the at the awareness that you can do that uh, and that that incident didn't necessarily mean that everything's dangerous or that you're incompetent everywhere um, and the other thing seemed to be those beliefs that if you have these beliefs that you're incompetent or things are too dangerous to handle or you can't approach things or have some other kinds of beliefs like that between those beliefs and that avoidance you just uh, are blocking the way to being able to get better um, from trauma and that, that results in PTSD. So I just, I, I, wanted, I wanted you somewhere along the way to be commenting on if this is an accurate way to think about it, then um, how do you decide when to keep avoiding uh, traumatic circumstances because they did you in the first time uh, mm-hmm. And when do you decide to approach them um, so that you don't get stuck forever avoiding, uh, but also right. you don't jump in in a way that just hurts you again? Um, sure. So just some opening thoughts about this. And my other thought was wondering what we mean by suffer by, by uh, trauma, since everybody has their different versions of suffering. So I'm just going to... Okay leave you with those thoughts and let you go wherever um, at this point. And I'll sit back and listen with everyone else for a while. Okay. Thanks, Charlie. Um, Let me start with your last question, actually, which is um, how we define um, trauma and how we think about what trauma is exactly. Um, this is, of course, not a straightforward answer um, and you know, a topic that there certainly is some controversy around. So I'll give a couple of ways of potentially thinking about this. Um, one is kind of um, the sort of by-the-book way, and the book being specifically the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, um, which is what we use to diagnose PTSD formally, um, uh, at least in the United States. And in that um, diagnostic manual, if you look up the um, diagnostic criteria for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, the first criteria in there defines what counts as trauma. Um, So criterion A uh, of the PTSD diagnosis in there um, has a definition of trauma that is what people often are using if you're formally trying to reach a diagnosis. Um, So that definition of trauma... um, includes any actual or threatened um, experiences in which you were actually or you were threatened with death or serious injury, basically. Um, And then something that was added into this version of the the manual is also any episode or experience of sexual violence. So the definition there is, again, some life-threatening experience where you thought you were going to die or um, you saw someone else die or serious injury. Um, And there's a a couple of ways um, that they sort of specify that traumas can be experienced that meet those sort of broad definitions. Um, The one we most often think about is that you directly experience it yourself. So you yourself you know, were um, attacked in some way and seriously injured, Um, you know, so direct exposure to a trauma. Um, But you can also end up with PTSD if you witnessed a traumatic experience. It didn't happen directly to you, um, but you saw it happening to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, A common example of this is um, children um, 
growing up in homes where there's domestic violence, for example, where they um, witness their mother being beaten, perhaps, um, by their father. So that kind of witnessing of trauma, even though they're not directly experiencing it, um, also can sort of qualify um, under the DSM definition. Um, And a a third way is that if you... um, learn about a trauma, you hear about something that happened to either a close friend or a relative family member of yours, like you hear that they were in a really horrific accident or something like that, Um, and um, that you personally experience as traumatic, that also can be sort of counted in in this definition. Um, And sort of similar to that one, yeah. Can the definition apply to if somebody has one of these things happen at once? Yes, absolutely. Um, so certainly people meet end up um, meeting criteria for PTSD in relation to an event that happened one time, um, a serious car accident, um, a natural disaster like Hurricane Maria, um, or a rape that happened one time, things like that absolutely mm-hmm. can um, result in PTSD. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also, of course, can things that happen many, many, many times, um, or many different types of trauma, um, sort of cumulatively coming together and causing PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> So just quickly, the last sort of um, way in which they, in the DSM, define trauma is also sort of indirect exposure, like you heard about it or saw the details um, of a traumatic event, like on TV perhaps, or in the course of your work, if you're, for example, a first responder, um, and you hear about your colleagues' experiences of some really traumatic event. So, um, So it's sort of a quick summary there is that that sort of definition of trauma requires some um, level of thinking, um, you know, death is possible, serious injury is happening, and it can be things you experienced yourself, you witnessed, or you learned or about other people experiencing. Even, even if um, you don't think that thing is going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so an example of that is sort of, you know, like after 9-11, yeah. You know, some people absolutely developed PTSD um, from watching the news over and over on TV and the video footage of, mm-hmm. you know, that horrible event, um, you know, things like that, that sort of indirect exposure um, to a trauma absolutely can cause PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the DSM definition. Um of what trauma is in terms of what traumas can cause PTSD. So one of the things that happened for me um, as I was um, starting to develop um, the treatment that we were talking about last week, the DBT prolonged exposure protocol, um, was that, you know, when I first did my very first study, you know, we, all the people who participated in that research met the DSM um, criteria for PTSD, so they met, they had at least one experience, usually many, many experiences that met that definition of trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the treatment, as we got to the part of the treatment where we started trying to figure out, you know, which traumas um, did they really want to focus on Mm -hmm. in their treatment? And, you know, there's a variety of ways we help people decide which ones they want to focus on, but often it really is, uh, you know, it's totally up to them, but often it is about, you know, what what traumas haunt you the most? Like, which traumas cause you the most distress or interfering in your life the most um, and, you know, sort of disrupting your living (laughs) the most? And one of the things we learned from our clients um, very quickly was that we had clients who who had experienced all of those kinds of trauma, the death, the injury, all those kinds of sexual violence traumas, all of that. And then we'd ask them sort of, what bothers you the most? And it wasn't those kinds of traumatic events much of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead, what what people were telling us was traumatic, most traumatic for them, is more experiences around Mm -hmm. um, having... Mm -hmm. uh, 
sort of what other people describe as sort of psychological abuse, verbal abuse. Um, we use the term in DBT uh, traumatic invalidation. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of experiences that in some very severe, extreme, often repetitive way essentially communicated to the person that they were bad, there was something wrong with them, they were unloved or unlovable, um, and they were criticized or insulted or neglected, ignored, you know, excessively punished, all mm-hmm. these kinds of things, but where there was not necessarily physical violence that went along with it or sexual violence that went along with it. Um, And those experiences for the clients that um, we work with are also very common and are often the most distressing or among the most distressing, even when they've also experienced, you know, rapes and physical attacks and accidents and, you know, all of those kind of more, you know, what the DSM would count as trauma. And so for for treatment purposes, um, I frankly don't care what kind of event it was. What I care about is what the clients say is haunting them the most and what they are having PTSD symptoms about. Mm -hmm. So what are your nightmares about? What are your flashbacks about? When you have intrusive memories of really distressing events, what events are those about? Um, And if it is these other kinds of experiences, this, you know, traumatic invalidation or verbal abuse, psychological abuse kinds of things, fine, we're going to treat that. Um, we'll treat it just the same way we would as the kinds of traumas um, that the DSM defines. Let me ask you, Melanie, so that is, you know, I, I know that's just probably an established fact for you. I still think that's kind of amazing because what you're saying is that, the, like, let's say I was a person who, was uh, in middle school or high school or somewhere along the course of my life i i was uh, i my life was threatened or events happened that threatened my life or i was even physically attacked at school or something and i really wondered if i was going to make it and then i had these other things happening where i was teased by my social group a lot in a way that made me feel terrible about myself you're saying some people would regard the latter as the thing that they felt to be more traumatizing or more painful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We have, you know, treated people a lot who have PTSD symptoms related to bullying, for example, and not bullying of the variety where they were beaten up and there was physical injury and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, but this sort of relentless teasing and exclusion and criticism and, um, you know, that kind of experience, um, absolutely, we've seen it where that causes people to have... You must do a lot have. of work with people who have that happen in social media because that's just become such a bullying, it's a bullying pulpit, it's a bullying modality for many yes, people. Yes, that can absolutely happen that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that... Oh, that's helpful. Oh, go ahead. That's helpful. I was just thinking... Um, and, and the fact that it can happen once is amazing, too. I mean, I'm not surprised at that because I won't go into that, but I've had my own experiences that were one-time experiences at a certain point in my life that left a trace forever um, of mm-hmm. things that I react to automatically. And uh, I think everybody probably has things like that. And, and I'm always astonished, you know. Uh, you have something happen once and then 50 years later, you're still reacting to the thing, even if it never happened again. Um, Yeah. It's really, the brain has a pretty long memory. It does, and traumatic events cause very intense emotions, and that's uh, often a one-trial learning phenomenon where that is just kind of, that fear learning was so scary and so intense, it's going to stick with you forever, even if it never happens again. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was uh, I was once um, I once witnessed a boy who was a very good uh, a, a really f- nice kid and a good athlete and he was uh, regularly uh, played uh, hockey and one day uh, he he went to his hockey practice this wasn't my kids but somebody I knew through them and um, he stood in outside the rink with his hockey bag on his shoulder and everybody else was getting dressed and ready for practice. And he stood there for the entire practice without speaking and without going in. 
and he just seemed immobilized. And it wasn't obvious to, to him, to his parents, or anyone else what had happened, but he never went back. Um, and, it, and he also backed out of going to school. He couldn't get himself to go to school. Nobody could get him to. And it led to a, a very long, protracted process of him just be, being at home uh, on his own, um, you know, un, not willing to do things and having uh, his family trying to help him with this. But I just always assumed, it, wouldn't that sound to you like a picture where there probably was something, but it but nobody knew anything about him, his life being threatened or him being hurt or anything physical happening like that. But one could imagine that there had been some sort of social input um, that just sort of built up to a point where it was too much. I mean, I'm, this is all hypothetical, but a picture like that, you don't know what the trauma was, but you know that the picture looks like someone who was feeling, feeling traumatized. Right. Well, I think it's a way of thinking about it, like, do you start from you know there was a traumatic event, so then you look for PTSD symptoms to see if Mm -hmm. they have PTSD, or do you start from the fact that they're clearly exhibiting PTSD symptoms and try to figure out what it was that caused it? Yeah. Um, You know, and that's sort of the more coming at it from the from the other side sort of way is that person you're describing sounds as if they were certainly experiencing PTSD like symptoms. And so certainly there's got to be a question then to figure out what was the trauma? What was the experience? Mm. Um, And that's sort of what I'm getting at when I say like, I don't, I don't really care what the event was for a client. Like what I care about is that they have PTSD symptoms. Mm. And if you've got PTSD symptoms, then by definition, you've experienced something that you personally found to be very traumatic um, and that it's impairing and it's getting in your way. And we've just got to figure out what it was and treat it. But what do you do if you can't, if a person can't come up with what it was? Yeah. You know, I've actually personally never run into that oh, really? um, where you okay. where you can't figure out what an event was. But I suppose if that were to happen, um, you'd be a little bit restricted in the the types of um, so you know we'll talk more about exposure and the types of exposure. But in the sort of types of exposure you could do, like you couldn't yeah. do imaginal exposure, which is sort of thinking and talking about a specific event if you don't know what the event was but you um, could absolutely be doing other types of exposure that are more about approaching situations in the world that you're avoiding, which it sounds like we're quite clear to see what those were with that example. Right, right. So do you want to go ahead and say some more now about how you move forward with people that present with PTSD? Yeah, so so with that sort of multiple options there of ways of thinking about trauma, I just wanted to provide a little bit of sort of statistics here um, that if you use the the DSM definition of trauma, so you know incidents that involve injury or death or sexual violence, um, you know surveys of at least um, in the United States of adults come back and say you know that the majority of adults have experienced at least one kind of event like that in their lives, mm-hmm. um, and. It sort of varies, of course, depending on the study, but somewhere around 60% of men and a little over 50% of women is sort of one widely cited study. Mm. Um, And what is also, I think, really interesting and important to understand is that even though the experience of that sort of more restricted definition of trauma is still widespread, the majority of people have experienced something like that, um, the number of people who go on to have PTSD is much lower. So it's something around 5% of men and 10% of women in their lifetime will end up having PTSD. So there is that kind of wide um, discrepancy there between the amount of trauma we experience and the number of people who end up with PTSD. And that, I think, speaks some to you know the question you raised earlier and the sort of analogy of you know how our bodies know how to sort of miraculously recover from physical injuries and, you know, wounds heal on their own. You know, we don't have to tell our bodies what to do kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the same is um, often and mostly true for people recovering from trauma, that the majority of people who experience traumatic events do naturally recover from those experiences um, without... Uh, developing PTSD um, in relation to them. 
Um, and I know last time I mentioned briefly, I believe that you know after immediately after a traumatic event, almost everybody experiences symptoms that look like PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're thinking about the traumatic events a lot. We're um, you know sort of having trouble sleeping or sort of jumpy and all those kinds of things. Um, so that you're not even technically allowed to diagnose PTSD until at least a month has gone by from the traumatic event. Mm-hmm. Um, and Why? that's partly because because most people do naturally recover. Um, um, yeah, I'll have to know. in and stuff. That's fine. That's okay. Um, so there's somebody who is not okay. on mute. Thanks. Yeah. If people want to make sure that you are on mute, um, we can hear somebody talking right now. Thank you. Um, so most people do naturally recover, and mostly that happens pretty quickly so that by a month later, they, they don't actually can't meet the criteria for PTSD um, at that point. So then your question is, like, how does that happen? What does natural recovery look like, and how is it that people are recovering largely um, after traumatic events? And um, this is where sort of the, the sort of recovery process basically involves people engaging in behaviors after a traumatic event um, that allow us to kind of emotionally process what happened to us in some way. Um, That that seems like the key. Yeah. To recovering from or to not having it or to healing is, is the way the body requires, let's say you get an injury on an arm and it's, you've cut and, and you've, you could get an infection or whatever, but the, but I, the way I think of it is circulation remains really important, and if you cut off circulation to that area, you're in big trouble. Um, but and and I just wonder if there's an analogy that you're just you're pro- when you say processing, I'm sure you're going to tell us more about it. But um, yeah, no, I think that's a great analogy. And so, um, you know, ways that people can end up, you know, processing the trauma that happened to them is. Um, sort of like keeping your circulation going to the um, injured part of your body, but is to allow yourself to um, have emotions about what happened to you. You know, when you've had a traumatic event, you're going to feel afraid. You're going to feel sad. You might feel angry. You often feel guilty. You know, whatever the emotions might be, to actually allow yourself to experience them, um, to sit and cry, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff rather than um, shutting off your emotions, which is like shutting off your circulation somehow, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to not feel anything, trying to distract from your emotions, you know, relying on substances to numb yourself out, you know, sort of whatever the strategies might be to avoid emotions, those are likely to interfere with that natural recovery process. Whereas if you allow yourself to kind of naturally experience emotions um, that might be present after trauma, Mm -hmm. that's likely to facilitate that natural recovery. Um, And sort of going along with that is um, to talk about the trauma, to, you know, sort of face what happened in some way, um, to talk to supportive people in your life about what happened, Um, you know, to write about what happened, if that's helpful for people, journaling and whatever, you know, those kinds of things, but to to not avoid thinking about what happened and the details of what happened um, and to sort of get support around that whenever possible to not isolate and keep it all inside you and try not to think about it um, Mm -hmm. after a traumatic event. as well as to sort of Melody, oh. that, that this business that what you're saying right now it raises for me that when I talked with um, Domingo from Puerto Rico after the hurricane there, and when I talked to Cedar Coons about her sister's suicide on an earlier set of podcasts, um, one thing that stayed with me later was I would say in both cases there I, I think they these were people who kept the circulation going in a sense to what they had been through and I think that was very helpful but another thing that stood out with both of them was the degree to which they stayed in contact with their supportive communities I mean as uh, and uh, maybe that just sounds obvious or something but 
I just, uh, I'm just struck by, you know, there's the social aspect of healing from these things. And for you, if you're talking, you're talking to somebody. Um, and if you're with other people and you're going over this, you're writing. Even when you're writing, you kind of are sort of thinking, I'm writing to somebody, unless you're used to writing a diary all the time. So I just wonder whether when you say uh, the, di- the different ingredients of getting better from this, how, how important is it to maintain the connections socially or to have a supportive community or how possible is it to do it on your own? Yeah, no, I think those are um, great questions. And I think, you know, ideally people have a social support network or community that they can rely on to talk about what happened to them and where they will have people around them who are likely to give them um, supportive and validating feedback um, and communicate care and concern. You know, like that is, of course, the ideal scenario. Um, and, you know, you know, from our research perspective, one of the factors that increases the likelihood that people will develop PTSD after a trauma is lack of social support. Mm. Um, so if you, if you don't have supportive people in your life, you are at higher risk of developing PTSD. And I think that's because likely you don't have people to talk this through with or process it with in some way. Um, And even worse than that might be scenarios in which the people who are around you are not supportive um, and might even be telling you the trauma was your fault or you're bad and sort of communicating some of the messages to you that are likely to um, result in long-term problems and PTSD. Mm-hmm. So I think social support is, is critical. If you have nobody around you, um, I think it's still possible, um, but probably harder, but certainly possible to think about ways you could do this independently, like writing out um, what happened to you, thinking about it yourself, um, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff might also be a way in. I would certainly try it. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of how, at least in my first job in psychiatry, it was at v, the VA hospital and working with uh, veterans at that era. It was veterans coming back from Vietnam or presenting with PTSD, um, having been in Vietnam. And uh, that it just, you know, when people came back from Vietnam, they often re-entered communities that uh, were uh, really demeaning to them uh, were politically against what they had been doing, things like that, and, and, and were, you know, and they felt like, oh, they had failed in their mission, not only that, it was the wrong mission. I just think it was, it, it was something I heard over and over and over again and that sort of um, put the nail on the coffin of PTSD with the people that came back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely, um, because those are the kinds of beliefs that people end up forming and often it's because they've been modeled by somebody else or told to them by somebody else um, that are very much associated with developing PTSD. Mm-hmm. So if your environment is telling you those things, um, yeah, it, much, it would definitely mm-hmm. increase risk. Um, one of the benefits of getting, you know, talking to people who, if you have them, are actually supportive too is um, early on is that it might you know, make it so you're less likely to form those kinds of beliefs, like you're less likely to blame yourself for what happened if you have somebody in your life who hears what, what you know, what happened to you and mm-hmm. very much affirms that that was not your fault and, you know, you couldn't have done anything different or, you know, whatever somebody supportive might say back might also sort of help to prevent the development of those kinds of ways of viewing what happened to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, And then another piece I would just add in of sort of this natural recovery process is for people, uh, it's more likely to happen if people stay um, engaged in their life in the same way they used to live their life before the trauma, Mm. Um, you know, where they're still doing the activities they used to do, Um, you know, they're not... Um, avoiding things, um, you know, the example you gave earlier, sort of staying inside your house all of a sudden all the time and not going anywhere, um, but where you're still engaged in your life and even intentionally imp- approaching reminders of the traumatic thing that just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also is a way to kind of 
process what happened to you and um, and to not let the sort of cycle of avoidance take over too quickly. Um, I can say, you know, as a personal example, personal experience, you know, uh, probably three, four years ago at this point, um, I personally experienced a traumatic event um, related to um, somebody holding me essentially at gunpoint. Um, and it was something that um, was incredibly scary. It absolutely met this definition. I, I thought that I could die um, at the time. And fortunately, I was, you know, working in an environment where my DBT consultation team actually um, was incredibly helpful with this and sort of forcing me to process what had happened so that I wouldn't get stuck there. And then sort of what, you know, what ended up being really helpful, you know, was having friends and colleagues saying, just talk about it. Tell us what happened. Mm -hmm. Tell us what it was. Don't avoid talking about it. You know, talk to other people about it. Talk to us about it. Write about it. Cry Mm -hmm. about it on team. You know, go back to the place where it happened. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all those kinds of things. Um, And that worked for me. It was certainly very distressing. I did not end up developing PTSD around it, and it was very much about sticking in the situation, letting myself approach the things, letting myself think about what happened, letting myself feel the emotions, and having support from people who were encouraging me to do all those things um, made a big difference. And I think that's sort of a, you know, ideal scenario, but also how the natural recovery process usually works in some way? You know, I, first of all, um, I appreciate that you shared such a personal example, and um, it raises a question for me of when you were then talking about it with people, um, and maybe, you know, it sort of fit with your thinking of what's supposed to help people not develop PTSDs, and it also fits with what DBT teams do. Um, So it was a good match. But um, did you feel at the time when you were sharing these distressing things, you know, with your team people, did you feel, oh, this is helping? This is helping. It's a good question. I kind of like things are flowing or, or, or not. I mean, I'm just thinking about people who really are reluctant to engage in this because it's so distressing to talk about it? Um, No, I did not immediately feel better, and certainly not in the moments of talking about it, right? Because when you're talking about it, it's going to make it more vivid in your mind. It's going to cause you to have more intense emotions than when you're not talking about it and not thinking about it. So certainly, usually, you know, my in-the-moment experience, and I think most people's, of actually thinking and talking in detail about a traumatic experience is that that's really hard, and it brings up a lot of painful emotions, and it doesn't feel good in the moment, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's more that it will... It's sort of faith in the outcome. (laughs) Like doing this is what is going to make me feel better in the long run, even though right now it's making me feel, you know, temporarily worse or or more distressed um, Mm -hmm. to approach it than Mm -hmm. to avoid it. But no, it was not by any means an instantaneous relief just by talking about it. It actually often, you know, makes you feel more distressed initially. It's a a choice point, just even whether it's a friendship or a family member or a therapy relationship it's a choice point of um, ask of, of really inviting people to um, process what their painful experience was and with that knowing that having the thought oh no I don't want to push them to do that because it could make it worse you know I could re-traumatize the person is the term that always comes up and um, and so I think the question comes up to what degree do you allow somebody to hang back, uh, avoid, uh, be isolated for a period, uh, come around to this at their own pace, assuming that if they arrive in safe conditions and supportive conditions, they might decide to do this. To what degree do you do that, or, or to what degree do you say, you know, we know this helps you, so we're going to ask you to go through this, even though at the moment it feels bad. I mean, is, is there a possibility that you're going to re-traumatize them by doing that? 
Yeah. Um, so I'll come back to the broader issue of how to um, get people to you know consider doing this really hard thing. But okay. um, in terms of the re-traumatizing um, issue, that is something we often hear people say. You know, oh, you know, having somebody really talk about what happened to them, this traumatic event, um, or think about it um, in detail, is going to be re-traumatizing in some way. And um, you know, and for me, it is um, when I. I think of re-traumatizing as meaning essentially a new traumatic event that might cause PTSD in some way. Mm. Um, and uh, that is not my experience whatsoever in doing this. Is it, is it emotional? Absolutely. But if you think about what people with PTSD, what their daily experience is, so if, they're having, if they have PTSD, by definition, their daily lives are intruded upon all the time by memories of their trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, they are going about cooking dinner or whatever, and all of a sudden, the, you know, some terrible sexual abuse episode is in the front of their mind, and they can't get it out of their heads. Mm-hmm. Or it's waking them up in the middle of the night, and they're having dreams about it, um, you know, so part of PTSD is this constant re-experiencing of past traumatic events. So the fact that we are asking people to think about their trauma is is no different than what's happening in their lives already with PTSD. They're thinking about it all the time. Um, and what's different is the way that we ask them to think about it and talk about it is going to actually bring them long-term relief. Um, as opposed to the way it happens with people with sort of those re-experiencing symptoms of PTSD is you might have that memory pop up while you're cooking dinner, but then you very, you know, as soon as you possibly can distract and, you know, push it out of your head. Um, And that kind of pushing it out of your head is uh, unfortunately going to make it more likely to come back um, and to come back um, more intensely and more often. Um, Whereas what we're asking people to do is, you know, have those memories, which they already have, which are already coming up, and to approach them in a much more um, systematic, planned way that is under their control um, and to think about it more fully and completely so that um, it will actually get processed and resolved and stop haunting you all the time and stop popping up in your mind all the time. And you get to decide when you want to think about it and when you don't as opposed to it showing up all the time in this PTSD kind of way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very helpful explanation I think because it's a I think it's a really common fear among uh, not only uh, individuals who have PTSD and people who are close to them but also a lot of therapists you just yeah. um, you know it combines with other things I know you've identified before that interfere with people uh, moving forward with this kind of treatment, some some of them having to do with just not knowing the treatment, not knowing what to do, but also this fear that it's going to uh, make the person's life worse. Um, it's really, really helpful to remember that they're already uh, being burned by these memories or these experiences. Right. And you know, to your question of when, when might you allow a person to sort of avoid in some way, I mean, first of all, the, the term allow always kind of makes me smile because um, I've given up any idea that I might have control over whether my clients <laughs> decide to do right. most things. Right. Um, but at any rate, um, when we might not suggest that avoidance is a problem is when it's not actually a problem, when they don't have PTSD, when they are not being haunted all the time by trauma memories, when they're able to live the kind of life that they want to have where avoidance isn't interfering um, with them being able to do things that are important to them and they're not suffering from PTSD, then fine. Um, so it really is about sort of how, um, how much distress is it causing? How much do you have PTSD? Um, if you've experienced trauma and you don't think about it often and you're not really approaching things that remind you of it, but it also isn't haunting you and messing up mm-hmm. your life and you don't have PTSD, then okay, that's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be, you know, as you know, you and, you and I got a question through email, and it's really about this because it's a, a family member who's raising the question that if sometimes someone in your family 
has uh, sort of narrowed their scope of their life into uh, not going out. It actually happened to the boy I was telling you about, about the hockey player. Uh, he ended up really not going out anywhere, and his parents were really working hard to figure out, should we be making him do something? Should we be getting him out even though we don't know exactly what's wrong and he's not articulating it? Or should we just let him bide his time even if he's not going to school, etc., and let him come out at his own pace? And I, I, don't, I know there's no run-right answer to that, but I just wanted to put that on the agenda since somebody raised a question like that. I mean, to what degree as family members are you, per, are you encouraging or allowing for isolation? Um, yeah, no, it's a really hard position um, as a family member to figure out what what the most effective path is. And I think ultimately it is, again, I would link it to how impairing is it? How much is it getting in the way of your family member <clears throat> being able to do the things they need to do or want to be able to do in their lives? And how distressed are they about that? Um, and if it is really interfering, um, and, you know, then I would start considering how might I encourage them to try to do this differently. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I have, um, I have children, and um, last week my son had something really difficult happen, and he wanted to stay home from school. You know, unfortunately for him, he has an exposure therapist as a mother. Um, <laughs> so it was this whole conversation I had with him about essentially the pros and cons. Like, okay, I understand why you'd want to stay home, and here's what's likely to happen if that becomes a, a pattern of a way of responding. And, you know, at the same time, I can totally understand it, and maybe a day off will help you, if, you know, to recuperate in some way. And um, we sort of weighed it out, and he decided he would stay home for one day and then go back to school. And I think and I could tolerate that um, given what was going on. And so, you know, but it's sort of finding a balance in that way. It's not like avoidance is such a, you know, like the devil all the time. Right. You know, there are going to be times we need to kind of retreat and recuperate, but it has to be temporary. It can't be this this cycle um, and turn into this kind of pattern that just goes on and on and on because then your life is going to get really small. Um, right. So, Yeah. I can talk a little bit more about how to um, some of the things that I have seen and I, I use to try to motivate people to do this, um, if that would be helpful. And I think family members can certainly also, you know, use some of the same strategies um, oh, as that'd be relevant. Great. That'd be great. I think, and also, you'll, um, you know, by next time, also we can come back to if if you want to fill out anything further about how you get people to do these things. Um, you know, how do you do mm -hmm. systematic processing of these things? Not that people listening on the podcast have to rely on this as if it's a training to do it, but just so people know the basic ingredients of how you do this. But it'd be great if you said something about how you get people motivated to do this, because that just seems where we're at right now. Yeah, and then we can talk about what the this is a little bit more next time. But um, yeah. overall, I think people will have the, um, gotten the message at this point that ultimately, one way or another, what we are going to be asking people to do um, is to uh, do exposure, to approach um, you know, the, the specific things we're doing with this treatment and treating PTSD, the types of exposure often involve um, thinking and talking about specific traumatic events in detail, um, as well as approaching avoided situations, uh, many of them that are typically related to the trauma in some way or trauma reminders in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll get more into those details. But, um, but if you think about that for a minute, you know, think about what that experience is like, right? So it's like we're asking people, we're going to be asking people to, um, you know, think about the most horrific, terrifying, shameful thing that ever happened to you. And then we're going to want you to talk about that with us as therapists. And we're going to want you to do that in a lot of detail, like as much detail as you can remember, about what happened, what you were feeling, um, what you were thinking, all of that. Like, we're going to want you to do that. We're going to want you to do that over and over for weeks, um, you know, for 30, 
40 minutes at a pop each time, right? Um, plus, we're going to have you going out there in the world and, and entering into situations that terrify you, going into places um, that are really hard for you to go because you are sure bad things are going to happen there. Um, you know, so sort of the obvious question then is like, who in the world would agree to do that? Um, you know, and why would they agree to do that? Right. And, you know, sort of the the short answer um, is because it works. It is incredibly effective. It is shockingly effective. It is one of the most effective things we know how to do in terms of a psychological treatment. Um, and so people who do it are highly likely to experience uh, improvement and relief um, in the long run. And it happens pretty quickly. So these, you know, this treatment, the one I um, do, it takes an average of 13 sessions. So you think about, you know, living with PTSD, often many of the people I treat have had PTSD for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can effectively treat it in about three months. It doesn't take that long. Um, so you can hear me. I'm doing my sales job. Like this is, but you have to be able to do a sales job. Like you are essentially selling somebody on doing something that their first instinct is going to be no way. Right. You know, if their first instinct wasn't no way, they probably wouldn't have PTSD in the first place because they probably wouldn't be avoiding, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got to be able to um, convince people that it's going to be worth it. And I think highlighting how effective it is, highlighting that it works reasonably quickly um, are often ways to get people um, to consider doing it. Um, and in general, as I was talking about with my son, it's a little bit of you know, sort of weighing the pros and cons because there's absolutely going to be cons to doing this as well. It's going to be mm-hmm. really hard. Mm-hmm. It's going to be challenging. You're going to have to feel really painful emotions. Um, it takes up a lot of time often. <laughs> you know, they're supposed you know, to be people, practicing. Do, people, do you find that people, let's say, who, are, who have a, a life in which they're working or going to school or something like that, do you recommend they take time off? Um, I don't unless it's truly impossible to fit this in in some way. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, we try to have, help people figure out how to do this in the context of their normal lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you ever have people that, um, if you knew that 13 sessions, for whatever reason that is, and if it had to do with actual amount of processing time, could you do 13 sessions in three days? <laughs> um, I haven't seen that yet. I think the lowest I have seen, it, and from a study perspective um, that has been really rigorously examined is 10 days. Um, So that um, was shown to be comparable to doing it in the more typical um, like 10 weeks kind of thing. So, you know, it's possible to speed it up. Um, In general, um, what we tell people usually is the more exposure you do, um, the faster you're going to feel better. You know, so if you can get yourself doing exposure homework every single day, you're going to feel better way faster than if you only do it once a week. So it isn't. Um, so if you're doing your homework, um, which from what I remember from the training I went to with you, it would include listening to the session again and again. Mm-hmm. And it would include filling some things out and identifying some things about how you're feeling and thinking. And it would include doing approaching things that you're mm-hmm. frightened of or that you're avoiding. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So you could um, be doing all that. That's not all therapy time per se, but it's the whole process. Exactly. Doing. Mm. One of the things I would say too is that you know ultimately, um, if you have somebody around you who is expressing confidence not only in the treatment, but in your ability to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that makes a huge difference, essentially, to have somebody as a cheerleader um, who believes in you and believes in the treatment and that ultimately, often, what it comes down to is um, the person being willing to take a leap of faith. Um, that you know they've got somebody like a therapist or potentially a family member telling them 
this is very likely to work and it's very likely to change your life and I believe you can do this and I am going to be here to help you figure out how to get through this. Um, That, I think, is often um, something that helps people be willing to consider it. If you contrast that with somebody who's like, well, I don't know, this sounds really scary and really hard and I'm not sure if you're going to be able to do it, maybe it's not going to work. Obviously, that's going to make it less appealing to somebody who's pretty ambivalent about it in the first place. But you know, let me ask this, and it's, uh, it's, it, I, I don't think it's that far off from the center of what you're talking about. I'm just thinking about if you really think of doing that, when you have somebody who's had really um, trauma experiences and PTSD, and, they're, and they have family members that care that much or might be able to do that, very often the family members themselves have been traumatized. Um, the way that you said, vicariously, or they've just been traumatized because they care about this person who's been through this horrible thing. I'd be like, and and therefore, to ask the family members to do that, it it just strikes me, you know, these podcasts we do also in conjunction with NEABPD, um, which, you know, which also has family connections programs. And I'm just having this idea that wouldn't it be helpful if family members had some kind of coaching, preparation, or even some version of the treatment themselves in order to find themselves able to process things and be able to approach their family members. Um, in the Absolutely. Way I can only imagine that would be helpful. Um, and, it, you know, it's often the case, too, that for family members, one of the most helpful things they can do is help their you know, their relative get connected to a therapist who can also Mm -hmm. take over the role here of being the person sort of leading the charge and figuring this out. Mm -hmm. Um, But family members can play a critical role in getting people willing to seek treatment um, and stick with it. And I think I often rely on family members during treatment um, to help in some ways because, you know, it's not as if we're necessarily going to throw people into the deep end and exposure and doing the hardest thing they could possibly imagine um, right away. And so often we're looking for ways to make it, you know, gradual um, in some way, and family members can play a role there as well. So, you know, if somebody is terrified of going to the grocery store um, and they've avoided that for a long time and, you know, we're sort of putting together some exposure tasks that they can work on and one of them is going to the grocery store and that just feels too overwhelmingly terrifying to do right right away by themselves, then I might ask them if they have a family member who could go with them Mm -hmm. Um, because that will usually make it a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Um, And so absolutely there's ways for family members to get involved in some of these exposure tasks. You know, the trick is we can't have that going on the whole time, we need people to ultimately be able to do these things on their own, but certainly um, as a way to ease people into it and help to kind of jumpstart the process, family members are mm-hmm. um, often helpful with some of this approaching scary situations. Well, I think this is really helpful comment because family members have often been burned so much or have been defeated in their efforts to do that, and the professional community doesn't always support it. And they, sometimes a professional community will take a stance like, this person has to do this themselves, and of course there's wisdom in that, but there's also wisdom in, no, let's go, let's go with them, and uh, it's finding a balance here uh, to move forward, and, and it unleashes compassion, I think, that family members sometimes have but don't know what to do with because they feel blocked. They, the person themselves maybe acts like they're against it, and if you don't have a surrounding a, a partner or a, a, a group of family members that that support you, it's really hard to confront somebody. It's sort of like working with the one family member that has severe substance abuse, and to do that on your own as a family member when other people are saying, no, back off, this is his problem. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess my yeah. mind right now is on the family a support piece um, of how that works with this treatment. And uh, I know it isn't like the mainstream of what you've talked about so far, but I'll just keep it in mind. And I know some people listening are family connections people or support people. Yeah. I just have one more thing I'll say. I think we're running out of time here. Yeah, but yeah. Um, 
whoever it is, whether it's a family member or a therapist or whomever is trying to encourage somebody to do exposure, exposure to trauma um, cues in whatever way, um, I think a really critical ingredient of getting somebody willing to do that is to enhance their sense of control over the process. Mm. Um, and really, it, this is their decision to make. This is not our decision to make. You know, what we can do is encourage and support and, um, you know, offer information and things like that. Um, but being mm-hmm. super clear that it is up to them to decide if they want to do it and how they mm-hmm. want to do it and, and, you know, whether they want to do it to certain situations and not others. Mm-hmm. Um, and staying as far away as we can from really badgering people, trying right. to coerce them into doing things, you know, right. that kind of stuff. Um, because I think the more we use the sort of shared decision-making approach that puts the control in the person's hands who's going to have to do the treatment and do the exposure, the more likely they are to say yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great point. Melanie, thank you. I know it is time to stop. We're going to need to stop and um, and pick up here next time. I'm so glad we have a third time to do this, and then we'll move on from you know hearing about this treatment and thinking more about how we apply this in our lives. So, thank all right, you. thank you, Charlie. All right, take care. Bye bye. All right, bye.